Good morning. Is this mic working okay? Can people hear? Okay, it was finicky earlier. Well, welcome to Bethlehem Lutheran Church, where God has called us to receive his gifts through his word. The Old Testament reading for the fifth Sunday after Trinity is from 1 Kings chapter 19. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mehaloah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of... Oh, just kidding. So he departed from there and, Elisha, and, Elisha, and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. The epistle is from 1 Peter, the third chapter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, 
who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fifth chapter. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Our sermon today is based on the epistle reading from from 1 Peter chapter 3. St. Peter writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Lord God, sanctify us by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Amen. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all have freedom, right? I mean, who doesn't? After all, it's kind of nice to not have all your gun rights taken away only to see a dramatic rise in knife crime. But the fact of the matter is that most of us Americans appreciate and cherish the individual liberty that we uniquely enjoy over most other countries. The American mind is acutely conscious of its freedom, and to a large extent, this widespread appreciation for freedom is one of the great pleasures of dwelling in this land. I already won the lottery. I was born in the U.S. of A, baby. But there's a question that's worth asking ourselves. 
How does that earlier statement from the Declaration of Independence hold up against the Bible? When the Declaration of Independence is speaking about God, does it actually get God right? Or does it maybe invent its own God that looks kind of nothing like the God of the Bible? The answer, unfortunately, is the latter. When the Declaration of Independence says that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, those rights that they go on to list are not, strictly speaking, actually things that God, or at least not my God, guarantees to man as a fundamental or inalienable right. And to be sure, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, these are all great things for a government to value and respect. The difference is that they're just not things that God isn't allowed to take away. Let's take a quick look at these three inalienable rights that the American Founding Fathers attributed to the Creator. Do all men have the inalienable right to life? This first one might come as the biggest shock of them all, but the answer is actually no. God does forbid us to murder our fellow man, that much is obvious. I mean, that's as simple as, thou shalt not kill. That's why you can't think, say, abortion is okay and still be a Christian. But do we men possess the right to life in such a way that even God himself can't take it away? Well, no. I mean, God strikes wicked men dead all the time in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Actually, one of the places where God strikes people dead today is at the altar when they take communion without recognizing the Lord's body. This is why we have, communion, have closed communion in the first place. It's to protect people from who don't know exactly what they're getting into. See, God is the author of life, and he can give it or take it away whenever he sees fit. Matter of fact, the only thing we're really entitled to is death, not life. We are entitled to die for our sin. And so, no, before God, man is not endowed with the inalienable right to life. What about liberty? Do all men have the inalienable right of liberty? Again, no. When you think about it, God is remarkably unconcerned with our personal freedom. Here's what St. Peter has to say leading up to our epistle reading from today. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as slaves of God. Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, 
suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. How about that? God wants us to submit to those in authority over us, even if those people treat us, treat us harshly when we do good. God would rather have us do good and still suffer than even so much as try to get out of slavery. If you're a slave and your owner is harsh, be submissive. All right, so that's slavery, but what about something a little more close to home, something a little bit more real? What about if you're in an abusive marriage? Does God want women who are in abusive marriages to get a divorce? Afraid not. Here's what St. Peter has to say about that one. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Huh. Now, make no mistake, a, a man who abuses his wife is certainly sinning and putting himself in danger of hell. I'm sure no one would disagree with that. But notice how St. Peter doesn't feel the need to point that out. To be sure, the Bible does actually condemn husbands and fathers who act cruelly toward their wives and children. But it does that in other places, not here. Here, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter isn't concerned with the bad conduct of ungodly husbands. What he's concerned with is the good conduct of the godly wives, in spite of the fact that they face physical pain and suffer for no good reason. Same thing with slaves. Peter doesn't go out of his way to condemn the harsh slave owner. That goes sort of without saying, but he doesn't address it. Instead, he's interested in talking to the Christian and telling the Christian to take it patiently. Both those situations are sort of unthinkable to us as Americans, and that's sort of a remarkable lack of concern for our personal freedom, now isn't it? And it's not just St. Peter that speaks this way. St. Paul says all this stuff too. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Okay, so liberty's off the table. Our Creator certainly has not entitled us to the right of liberty. Now, what about the pursuit of happiness? 
do all men have the inalienable right of the pursuit of happiness? Well, again, no. And first of us, first, first off, this phrase, the pursuit of happiness, isn't what most people think it is. It's actually sort of a technical phrase of just referring to property rights. So do we get property rights from God? Not really. If we aren't even entitled to not be a slave, then we're also not entitled to own property. Remember what St. Paul said? Were you a slave when you became a Christian? Just don't even worry about it. Yeah. God really doesn't care all that much about your happiness in this life, and he isn't overly concerned about your right to own property. So now that we've gone through those three items from the Declaration of Independence, that's a lot of things that God doesn't care about, or at least not enough to give us a free pass. Christians don't get the right to rebel against a harsh slave owner, and they don't get the right to divorce and remarry just because they're in a difficult marriage. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, God can take all these things away in the blink of an eye. So, what does God care about? Well, the answer is pretty simple. All he really cares about is that we go to heaven. Listen again to what Peter says in today's epistle reading. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So, instead of all those things, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, God calls us to suffer. I don't know about you, but I'll take a God any day who calls me to suffer and yet rewards me with eternal life over some God who lets me freely chase after my own happiness, but in the end, in my last hour, when I'm about to meet him, can do nothing for me. Remember what Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So, it might come as a shock that God displays so little concern about our earthly happiness, and even expects our bodies to experience suffering. But do you realize what that means? Do you know what it means that God tells us not to be afraid to suffer for doing good? It means he knows that what he has in store for us is so much greater than what we could possibly ever enjoy in this life. In fact, the resurrection is going to be so much greater than this that God says we won't even remember our life as we know it now. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Make no mistake, God may not care about our freedom as we understand it as Americans, but, and he may not 
give us permission to turn away from suffering at every corner. But what he does care about is your soul. Dear Christian, he cares exceedingly about where you spend eternity. He so fervently desires all men to be saved that when one sinner does come to repentance, God's heart so overflows with joy that he compels all the angels in heaven to rejoice with him when someone is saved. For us, us Christians, our sorrows will fade away into but a distant memory. On the other hand, for those who do not know Christ, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sha'ol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Yes, even our flesh, our bodies, will one day dwell secure. We will one day live in such bliss that our suffering on this side of the valley of the shadow of death won't even come into our minds. And sure, do love your lives, but love not your lives unto death. St. John tells the church, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And so, dear Christian, you who are precious in the sight of God, remember. Remember what's in store for you here. Suffering, tribulation, your own cross that you must carry. If anyone desires to come after me, says our Lord, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? After all, Jesus, this God of ours who calls us to suffer, did himself suffer. And he did it for you. This is one reason why I wish our first Peter reading for today didn't end where it does at verse 15. Because Peter goes on to tell us that it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And what is it that Peter goes on to say is the result of Christ's suffering? 
What did Christ, our suffering servant, or suffering slave, accomplish by his embarrassing death and physical agony? Baptism. He won for us baptism, which now saves us. Saves us from our sin in this life, but saves us also from any suffering in the next. All because he, the righteous one, was not afraid to suffer with us, to suffer in our place, to bring us to God. And so, yes, remember the suffering of Christ, and remember also that suffering is what awaits you in this life, but more than that, remember what awaits you in the next. Remember what unimaginable joy your Lord is pleased to give you. He shall wipe away all tears from your eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.